Entering the team's ring of honor just last season, Matt Hasselbeck stands out as one of the best quarterbacks in Seahawks history. But how different might history be if the Seahawks wouldn't have acquired him from the Packers back in 2001? Rob Rang and I are going to revisit that trade and what might have transpired if the Seahawks didn't pull off that trade in our latest What If Wednesday on Locked On Seahawks. You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. Joining me for our Wednesday episode, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. Thanks, as always, for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. We're going to continue our 90-player countdown today. We've got numbers 45 through 41 getting closer to our top 25, and we're going to be revisiting the What If segment, our latest What If, looking at what might have transpired if the Seahawks wouldn't have traded for Matt Hasselbeck back in 2001. I know Rob and I are both eager to revisit that trade and how differently things might have been if Seattle didn't reunite Mike Holmgren with his former quarterback from the Green Bay Packers. Now for your lead story here on Locked on Seahawks. It seems like every year for the past nine, ten years that we've seen alternative professional football leagues try to stamp out their own mark in the marketplace. And for the most part, they have failed. We've seen the XFL have two different renditions that didn't make it out of a season. We've seen a couple of other leagues, like the Spring League, that lasted for one year. But the USFL, it looks like they might actually have a chance at some staying power returning for their second go-around. Ended their inaugural season last week with the Philadelphia Stars falling to the Birmingham Stallions 33-30. to It was actually a really exciting championship game for it the was. USFL. And interestingly, Rob, there was a lot of Seahawks flavor in this game. Yeah, there certainly were. Uh, and for, for the champion, Birmingham Stallions, uh, as you said, they won 33-30. to There were 28 combined points scored in the fourth quarter, Corbin. So it, it was a barn burner. Uh, you know, and a, a big part of the success of the champion uh, Birmingham Stallions was a couple of former Seahawks quarterback Alex Magoo, um, who was one of who was the, one of the Stallions' very first selections, um, but that wound up actually being a backup for much of this past season behind a quarterback named Jamar Smith. But Magoo was able to come in in the late portion of this game when Smith went down with the injury. He threw an interception, but also threw a touchdown. Down to the wide receiver Victor wide receiver and returner Victor Bolden who wound up becoming the MVP of this game um, and then as well as the running back Bo Scarborough and, and Seahawks fans are probably going to remember Scarborough a little bit more than they do Magoo uh, just because Scarborough played at Alabama he did have a little bit of time uh, for the Seahawks during the regular season not just on the practice squad and as uh, in training camp the way that Magoo a quarterback uh, that was selected for out of Florida International a couple of years ago by the Seahawks. Um, obviously, Magoo and Scarborough did not have a great deal of success in the NFL, but they were superstars for the Birmingham Stallions this past year. Not only won the title, as we talked about before, they only had one loss all season long, Corbin. They were easily the best team in the USFL this past year. And again, Magoo and Scarborough, two former Seahawks, were a big reason for all that success. 
Yeah, Magoo actually had a really interesting path this year because he started their initial game and struggled for most of that game, got benched, and really they were playing a back-and-forth quarterback corral, which you can get away with in the USFL. NFL, if you have two quarterbacks, you don't have one. But in the USFL, a minor league like that, you can get away with it. So they were able to mix and match quarterbacks. But Magoo was really the number two guy most of the season. But when they needed him to step up at the end of this championship game, he did so with that touchdown to Victor Bolden. And there's never been a question about the physical tools with Magoo. We saw it on display at times in the preseason where you could see the athleticism, the ability to escape the pocket. You saw the arm strength with some of the passes downfield. And then you would see interceptions like the one that he threw to Justin Simmons last year in a preseason game where I still to this day don't know what receiver he was even aiming to throw the ball at. And you saw knucklehead throws like that. That is why he's in the USFL, not the NFL. But a player like that that wasn't able to get regular season snaps and is still a pretty young quarterback, you know, maybe this can get him another opportunity in a training camp with a team because teams are always looking for quarterback depth. So who knows? Certainly a good showcase for him in the championship game. As for Bo Scarborough, I think he is the more notable name here for Seahawks fans for a couple of reasons. Really, Washington football fans in general, the Husky fans remember him for just torching them in a bowl game years ago at Alabama. That was kind of his coming out party for the Crimson Tide. And at 230 plus pounds, a big physical back. And he was playing well in his regular season debut with the Seahawks a few years ago and then suffered a significant groin injury that cost him the rest of the season. It was unfortunate. That's been the issue they've had at running back in general. Keeping guys healthy has been a problem. But Scarborough was another guy that really had the talent to be a every down type running back in the NFL, but he had constant injury issues in his time with the Cowboys, the Seahawks was with a couple other teams as well. So it's nice to see him have some success and stay healthy in the USFL. He might be another guy that can get a chance to get an invite to camp just because he's always had the size and the physical tools that not a lot of running backs in the league have. Maybe he gets another opportunity, but it was cool to see both these guys go out there. And it was nice to see a minor league actually finish its season. Uh, the a- I remember the AAF a couple of years ago, they didn't even finish their season. The XFL then had COVID hit. So the USFL had a little bit more good fortune, seemed like they were set up better. Now, we'll see if that means they're going to have the sustainability to have a second, third, fourth season, but they do look like they are in a much better position. And when you have a quality football game like that for your championship game, it's going to be easier to persuade fans to buy in in year two when we get to next spring. Yeah, there's no question about it. Uh, you know, and I'm kind of rooting the USFL on uh, a little bit because, of course, you know, I, I love football as much as a lot of our, our listeners and viewers. And thank you, as always, to all those listeners and, and viewers. And uh, and there were some pretty exciting changes that the USFL incorporated into football this, this past season. Um, you know, a, a big part of it was just the replays and how quickly uh, the games went. Uh, same thing in the CFL. You, you just don't see see the number of penalties, the number of reviews that take, you know, 20, 30 minutes, it feels like that we see so often in the NFL, that those things weren't happening. And I think that the quicker pace of the game, I think is a little bit more fan friendly, Corbin. And as the USFL continues to expand um, this past season, of course, all of the games with the exception of the playoffs were all played in Birmingham. And that gave the team a little bit of a home field advantage. The, the actual title game itself was played in Canton, Ohio, home of the pro football hall of fame. Um, and, 
And so I, I think that because of the regional appeal in Birmingham, I'm not sure there's a state that loves their football any more than the great state of Alabama. And then again, you go to Canton, Ohio for the actual championship game for the USFL. I thought that the, that, that kind of upstart league here now it's in its second version, of course, um, but they did a nice job of, of trying to uh, produce a product that was going to be able to create some fan interest across the country, but definitely focus in on two regions um, in Alabama and Ohio that are full of football fans. And one quick note, again, on, on former Seahawks playing in the USFL. We, we talked about Bo Scarborough and Alex Magoo for the champion uh, Birmingham Stallions. I do want to at least acknowledge Cedric Lattimore, defensive tackle, um, did not register any statistics in the national or in the championship game. But at the same time, a lot of Seahawks fans out there might remember Lattimore playmaking defensive tackle from Iowa uh, who actually was on Philadelphia Stars roster as well. So again, three different former Seahawks in the USFL championship game. That in itself was enough to cause, I'm sure, some Seahawks fans to be among the reported 1.5 million Americans who tuned in to watch the USFL championship game. I'm curious to see what happens with some of these guys now that they're out of their contracts with the USFL and they got this experience, even if it's not the NFL playing in a professional league, how many of these players get picked up on 90 man rosters and get an invite to training camp. And if there are some success stories, some guys that with that experience end up making a few 53 man rosters or at least making practice squads, I think you're going to see a lot more of those fringe roster players that get cut rather than just sticking with a practice squad in the NFL. They might say, you know what? I want game experience and they'll get an opportunity next spring, maybe, and the league will have an infusion of maybe a little bit more talent than what they had this year. And that's really what you're hoping for when you're running one of these leagues so that you can have sustainability. We'll see if the USFL is able to obtain that. It's been tough sledding for all the other leagues, but maybe just maybe this will be the one that hits and and ends up having long-term sustainability as a secondary league to the NFL. Up next, we're going to be revisiting our What If segment here on What If Wednesday Checking out the trade that sent Matt Hasselback to the Seahawks back in 2001. What would have happened if the Seahawks didn't make that move? Kind of a scary proposition giving the Seahawks 1990s issues getting quarterbacks. So we're going to check that out here in a moment. From the people who invented healthy and tasty comes the latest gift to your taste buds. You've probably tried the amazing Coconut Brownie Chunk Built Bar, but guess what? Your friends at Built have given Coconut Brownie Chunk the Puffs treatment. That's right, the Coconut Brownie Chunk Built Bar flavor you love and a deliciously chewy marshmallow covered in 100% real chocolate is like a fluffy cloud of coconut brownie goodness. But stop drooling and listen, they are good for you. Low calorie, low sugar, high protein, and all delicious. Coconut Brownie Chunk Puffs are only here for a limited time. So go to Built.com right now to make sure you don't miss out. They're going fast because they taste amazing. All Built Bars are made with collagen protein, which your body absorbs more efficiently and provides tons of health benefits. Eat something that tastes good and is good for you. The best part, of course, about Built Puffs, they taste amazing, but you can enjoy them guilt-free. They are the perfect treat. Whether you have a sweet tooth craving or you need a quick, healthy snack, they're an excellent source of protein in either case. Delicious coconut, rich, sweet brownie, creamy marshmallow. Stop fantasizing. Get to Built.com to order your box of coconut brownie chunk Built Puffs right now. Visit Built.com, use the promo code LOCK15 and get 15% off your order. Again, that's Built.com. Use the code LOCK15 for 15% off your next order. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Wednesday edition. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Joining me as always, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. Thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen 
five days a week. Continuing our series here, What If Wednesday, revisiting a number of Seahawks topics in earlier history. We discussed the Thomas Rawls injury back in 2015. We looked back at what would have happened if the Seahawks wouldn't have traded for Jimmy Graham and sent Max Unger to the Saints in the same year, 2015. We decided let's get away from the past decade. Let's let's do something that's a little less recent, but still would have a player that our listeners can identify with. And so we're going way back to 2001. It's weird saying way back and realizing that that was 21 years ago. I feel extremely old saying that, but the Seahawks made a noteworthy trade at the quarterback position before the draft in 2001 with the Green Bay Packers to acquire Matt Hasselbeck. And and Rob, at the time, nobody knew if Hasselbeck was going to be a starter caliber player at the quarterback position in the NFL. He'd been behind Brett Favre for the first couple years of his career. He had worked with Mike Holmgren. He was drafted by Mike Holmgren before he ended up going to Seattle. So this reunited the two of them, but Hasselbeck only had a handful of regular season passes under his belt. So there was a lot of uncertainty. Nobody knew he was going to become a three-time Pro Bowler and lead this team to their first Super Bowl. Well, they, they certainly didn't, but Mike Holmgren, of course, after previously coaching him in Green Bay, had a little bit of a hint, and I think that was one of the biggest reasons why he, uh, Ted Thompson, John Schneider, Scott McLuhan, why they, they made that big push uh, to acquire Matt Hasselbeck from Green Bay, where, again, all four of those talent evaluators, including the most important of the bunch, head coach Mike Holmgren, of course, all brought Hasselbeck in. And I, I think that it's important to kind of go back in the time machine a little bit Corbin and, and to give our listeners maybe some of whom were not even alive yet 21 years ago to just to kind of give them some perspective um, the, the Seahawks had brought in Mike Holmgren who of course had won a Super Bowl uh, championship with the Green Bay Packers of course quarter, quarterback Brett Favre was uh, you know taking pat or throwing the ball um, for the Packers at, at that point um, and lured Mike Holmgren to Seattle um, where the Seahawks were replacing a previous head coach and Dennis Erickson. They had had a number of quarterbacks who had been reasonably successful, but certainly no one who had the, the type of upside that a young Matt Hasselbeck offered. Um, there was not a lot of free agent options out there on the quarterback market. Seattle was debating about whether or not they were going to bring back John Kitna. There were other big names, and I say big in air quotes for those of you who are watching, big name free agents out there uh, like Gus Farratt for example, Warren Moon, who had already had his uh, time in Seattle. He had been released by the Kansas City Chiefs. There just was not much on the quarterback market in terms of free agency. We didn't see the big splashy trades for uh, proven quarterbacks at that time, at least not very often. The, the draft was an interesting one. Um, and uh, we, we saw Michael Vick wind up going number one overall to the Atlanta Falcons. And Seattle did have two first-round picks, Corbin, because of the Joey Galloway trade, sending Galloway to the Dallas Cowboys a year before. So Seattle had some options in this draft, but I think that the decision that they made to bring in Matt Hasselbeck was kind of affectionately called, you know, Mr. August because he was so darn good in the preseason, but of course, never had a real opportunity to show what he could do in the regular season because again, he was backing up Brett Favre. But Seattle knew, or excuse me, Mike Holmgren and his scouts knew what Hasselbeck offered. 
they knew that the 6'4", 235-pounder had that prototypical size that Mike Holmgren always prioritized. And so Seattle did make that trade, acquiring Hasselback. And of course, the, the rest of the story basically writes itself with, as you mentioned, uh, Hasselback earning three different Pro Bowl nods during his 10 years in Seattle, taking the team to its very first Super Bowl opportunity. And of course, now it's on in the ring of honor. And we've talked about this a few times. It's not like Hasselbeck came to Seattle and just suddenly became an amazing starting quarterback. In fact, he bounced in and out of the lineup. Trent Dilfer became the starter on a couple different a couple different occasions because Mike Holmgren got frustrated. And you look at the first year stats in 2001, playing in 13 games, starting 12. Hasselbeck had seven touchdown passes and eight interceptions, completed fewer than 55% of his passes. I mean, he did not look like a starting quarterback in the NFL in 2001. The early part of 2002, Trent Dilfer took over as the starter, and then Dilfer got hurt. And that is really late in the 2002 season when you started to see the light switch come on for Matt Hasselbeck. He started to play better. 2003, made his first Pro Bowl. So after that, the rest is history. He leads the team to five straight playoff appearances, leads them to their first Super Bowl, nearly beat the Pittsburgh Steelers, couldn't quite finish it off. But when he retired, he led several categories for the Seahawks in terms of passing and passing touchdowns, things of that nature. He was in the top two in almost every major category, along with Dave Craig. So put together a great career. But I kind of want to go back. You just outlined everything that happened. If this trade does not happen, if Mike Holmgren, you know, he was not just the coach, he also had team general manager duties the first couple of years he was in Seattle. So he had full authority to make this move. But let's say that he doesn't bring in the player he drafted in Green Bay before coming to Seattle. He doesn't bring Hasselbeck in. You mentioned the lack of free agent options. Gus Verrott being your best option, that is never a good situation if you're looking for a franchise quarterback. They weren't going to get Michael Vick because he was the consensus number one player in that draft. He was not slipping out of that number one spot. So even with two first rounders, Seattle was not set up to be able to get him. And the rest of the quarterbacks in that class, aside from Drew Brees, Drew Brees was available and got picked at number 32 overall. I'm sure fans would have loved to see Drew Brees playing in Seattle, given what we know now, but there wasn't certainty about him being a franchise quarterback. And the Chargers traded him or got rid of him at one point, and the New Orleans Saints signed him because they had moved on. They had moved on to Phillip Rivers, who they viewed as their franchise quarterback. So there was a lot of uncertainty, not a lot of depth in that class in terms of quarterbacks, not many free agents available. The one name that I will throw out there, uh, Drew Bledsoe after the 2001 season, former Washington State star, so he had starred out here in Pullman, was not a fleet-footed quarterback, but certainly had a big arm, and at that point was still a quality quarterback in the league, that might have been a fallback option that matched with Mike Holmgren's offense, running that West Coast scheme. That might have been a good fit in the short term if they wanted to go that route after 2001. He ended up going to the Buffalo Bills because the Seahawks didn't make a play for him, but that would maybe be the only name back then if you're going for a veteran that would have made much sense that could have kept the Seahawks in the hunt for a playoff berth. I don't think signing somebody like Gus Farratt would have moved the needle at all for them. So I think when you look back, really the Hasselbeck trade, if it didn't happen, you know, maybe they end up getting their guy a few years later, but the trajectory for this franchise getting to the Super Bowl in 2005, at minimum, it's going to get delayed. And then you could potentially lose Steve Hutchinson as they did. Who knows if they ever get close to getting to the Super Bowl without making this trade. It ended up being a home run for him, even if that first year, Things didn't look good, and Hasselbeck really struggled. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm happy that you mentioned that Hasselback struggled and the the lack of foot quickness and maneuverability from Drew Bledsoe. Um, you know, again with, with Hasselback, it it was a a rough start in Seattle. I remember going to some of those early games. So that that's first season that Mike Holmgren was in Seattle. Corbin, um, longtime Seahawk fans might remember that 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 season. There was two years there where they were they had. Uh, destroyed the kingdom we're building what was then called quest stadium or quest field um and uh and so the Hus or the seahawks were playing at husky stadium for those two seasons and i remember watching matt hasselback go out there i think it was against the philadelphia eagles and get absolutely trounced um and, and it just looked like well this big decision by uh you know the new head coach and and grand Puba, mike holmgren looks like a terrible decision at this point and so it's a testament really to to holmgren to hasselback um that they were able to kind of right the ship and, and get that that club moving um you know considering the fact that, that the quarterback was such a you know is such an incredibly important part of the team obviously um and then as far as going back to drew bledsoe um of course the the former number one overall selection seattle almost got him they wound up selecting rick meyer when bledsoe went one pick earlier to the new england patriots and and, and bledsoe was an unbelievable college and nfl player but as you said, he just didn't have much foot quickness. I mean, this is kind of that traditional drop back stationary pocket passer. And Mike Holmgren always wanted quarterbacks who played that more traditional West Coast offense that could get out and do some things with their legs on rollouts and bootlegs and things like that. Something that Matt Hasselbeck starred in, of course, in a later selection by the Seahawks at the quarterback position, Seneca Wallace, a couple of years uh, later, he obviously also was very athletic in that regard. And that kind of leads me to the other quarterback that Seattle could have considered. There's a lot of Seahawks fans right now who are just imagining the possibilities. If you had lined up Mike Holmgren and Drew Brees together, just imagine the different passing numbers that, that could have resulted there. But again, Drew Brees is 5'10", same kind of height as uh, as Russell Wilson. And Mike Holmgren, even after he left Seattle, you know, while he certainly had to acknowledge the success that Russell Wilson had in Seattle, he was not a huge fan. Uh, of that selection when it happened because like most they just believe that to be successful at the quarterback position you had to have a certain height and drew Brees, of course did not have that um and and so a lot of the success that he had uh previously with the san diego chargers as you referenced and then afterwards going to the new orleans saints of course new orleans plays their games inside of a dome and san diego the weather just is a little bit different there than it is in seattle and, and so some of those concerns about about Breeze and his longevity, um, you know, wound up not being an issue because obviously Breeze wound up retiring from the NFL. It's just the NFL's all-time leading passer. Um, but at the same time, there certainly were plenty of concerns at the time. There's a reason why Drew Breeze fell all the way out of the first round that year, wound up being the very first selection in the top of the second round, number 32 overall uh, by the Chargers that year. So uh, again, there's some people out there who I think are going to kind of poo-poo the success that Matt Hasebeck had for the Seahawks. And certainly long, true blue Seahawks fans know what an incredible player that Matt Hasebeck was on and off the field for the Seahawks. When he retired or when he left Seattle, of course, he was the all-time winningest and most statistically successful quarterback in this franchise's history. Um, you know, 
But at the same time, I think there's going to be some Seahawks fans out there who say, oh, what if they would have got Drew Brees? Sure, that's an exciting possibility. I think it's also something that you have to consider. What if they had instead drafted a quarterback who was the next quarterback off the board after Drew Brees, Quincy Carter? Dallas drafted him out of Georgia and think about the career that he had. Even the former Washington guy, a, a very a beloved player like Marquise Tuiasasopo, of course, his his uh, I believe it was his dad played uh, for the the Seahawks' defensive tackle, Manu Tuiasasopo, years previously. He had been kind of bandied about as a possible uh, you know long-term successor for the Seahawks, the quarterback position. I think the Seahawks fans should be really happy that things turned out the way that they did, that they got number eight in Seattle. And again, his success speaks for itself yeah I think this segment's a little bit different than what the last two have been I mean last week really was more of a draw when you look at that Saints Seahawks trade with Jimmy Graham and Max Unger and you and I argued with the locket pick coming from that extra selection that they got ultimately the Seahawks probably were the ones that won that trade but it was very close margins and then the week before Thomas Rawls you know, if he doesn't get hurt, there's probably at least one more playoff win for the Seahawks. They might have been able to win the whole darn thing. That was a huge injury for him. I think this week, this is one where if the other scenario plays out, Seahawks fans are sitting there like, whoa, wait a second. No, we like how things went. This is one when you look in retrospect, you look in hindsight, might they have been able to get Drew Brees? Might that have worked out better for them? Sure, but you got to a Super Bowl. You went to five straight playoff games. Matt Hasselbeck had a fantastic career in Seattle. A lot of the other alternatives that we just threw out there, there's no way the Seahawks have the success in the playoffs and the success they did over a sustained period of time that really paved the way for this last decade of Seahawks football under Pete Carroll. There's no way they're near successful without making this trade and having Hasselbeck go through those bumps eventually develop into a franchise caliber starting quarterback. And that's really what got this franchise on the right side, able to advance the playoffs and do some damage, get to the big game and set up the success that they've had now for really the last two decades. A lot of that coincided with Holmgren and Hasselbeck, the coach and the quarterback coming in and really changing the culture and making this a perennial contender in the NFC. We're going to continue our 90 player countdown here coming up next. We've got numbers 40. Five through 41 so we're almost into the top 40 on the roster a lot of familiar names rob that we're going to be getting to on today's show let's start it off here coming in at number 45 marquise goodwin and he's never played it down for the seahawks but rob seahawks fans know him well because he played a lot of snaps for the san francisco 49ers his best season came way back in 2017 he also was an olympic qualifier in the long jump so we're talking about a remarkable athlete, even at 32 years of age. He is still a guy that probably runs in the low to mid 4.3s. He ran a 4.2740 coming out of Texas in 2013. He still looks like he can fly. We know Pete Carroll loves receivers, have great speed. He's got a great personality in the locker room. He's played a lot of snaps. He's a savvy route runner. He's played in the outside, in the slot. He's played out of the backfield a little bit. There's really no guarantee he's going to make this roster because of the depth the Seahawks have at receiver. But if he can recapture some of the stuff that he put on film with San Francisco, the last few years have been tough for him. He sat out 2020 as a COVID opt-out. If he's able to do what he did in San Francisco, this is a similar offense to what Kyle Shanahan runs. You would think that he would be a really good complimentary piece as that fourth or fifth receiver and at least be a mentor to somebody like D. Eskridge as he enters his second season in the league. 
Yeah, I think that's well said, Corb. I mean, that, that's the thing is that he can play that role as a mentor to the young receivers that are on this roster. He also has that unbelievable straight line speed to be the deep threat that you need to really complement the other receivers, pass catchers, uh, and the running game that, that Seattle uh, is seeking to employ. What I think is going to be fascinating is we all know that Russell Wilson was one of the best and most accurate deep ball quarterbacks in all of the NFL. And Geno Smith and Drew Locke are both very successful deep ball throwers as well. But are they as accurate as Russell Wilson? Is Shane Waldron going to allow these quarterbacks to try to throw the ball as deep down the field when you have the turnover along the offensive line that Seattle is going to have this year? So I like the fit in the offense that Seattle has run in the past. I'm curious to see how much of a rapport that Goodwin is able to build up with whoever Seattle's starting quarterback is going to be able to be. Because I think that Goodwin has to make some splashy plays in training camp and in the preseason to wind up winning this spot. Otherwise, I think that you have to go with the younger, similarly speedy receivers like a Bo Melton or, as you mentioned before, D. Eskridge. Yeah, that's going to be the issue here is they've got a lot of young receivers with upside who are just as athletic and Goodwin at this point, at least, is not the athlete that he was 10 years ago uh, when he was coming into the NFL. Still very athletic. So he's going to have to have a great training camp and preseason to really solidify a roster spot. Right now, I think he's truly a 50-50 player. Up next here at number 44, another Miami Hurricane running back. We talked DJ Dallas yesterday. Travis Homer was picked in the sixth round one year earlier by the Seahawks. And he has certainly had his moments in particular on special teams. His rookie year had a big run on a fake punt against the Vikings last year, had a 73 yard touchdown on a fake punt run against the 49ers at home. So he has been exhilarating on special teams. We've seen glimpses on offense too. He's much stronger than he was when he came into the league. He was around 200 pounds. I bet he's close to 215 now. And He's one of the rare cases, Rob. I've talked about this a lot on our show. I don't like it when running backs bulk up in the NFL. 90% of the time, it doesn't work out well for them. But in the case of Travis Homer, I think he looks faster, more explosive, and obviously he's much better suited to run between the tackles now at 215 pounds. The key, of course, is going to be staying healthy. He had a major calf issue last year that held him out of most of training camp. Now that you've got Ken Walker the third in town, you brought back Rashad Penny. This is going to be a crowded backfield. He is a great special teams player. He's the best pass protecting running back on the team. That gives him an edge as a third down back. Right now, I would think that he has that edge over DJ Dallas, which is going to make this a very interesting competition to watch because really I think both those guys right now, they truly are battling for that third down role and special teams reps. Not going to be in the mix to start with Rashad Penny, Ken Walker the third. If Chris Carson comes back, that just makes it a bigger log jam. Certainly a talented player, but he's going to have to continue making an impact on special teams as he has to really guarantee his roster spot because of how much talent that there is at this position. Yeah, again, I think very well said. Uh, I think that uh, Seattle's backfield is going to be one that a lot of rival teams are going to be paying very close attention to because, um, uh, you know, 
I, I do agree with you. I, I think that this is going to come down to DJ Dallas versus Travis Homer to have that fourth running back spot. Chris Carson, of course, being a huge wild card here. Um, but both of them have proven themselves to be legitimate NFL backs, not only as runners, but as receivers, pass protection, special teams, the gamut. Um, and so because of that, I, I do think that Travis Homer is the favorite at this point. But even if he and or DJ Dallas wind up being released, that they are going to have NFL futures. And, and then I love that you mentioned the fact that we typically do see most NFL running backs as they get older or bigger, then they lose some of that speed. And I would agree with you. Travis Homer does look more explosive. I don't know what happened to those biceps. It looks like he was on the, the Robert Turbin plan uh, with, <laughs> with the way that he just bulked up. I mean, you know, a lot He's of times got you see Bobby that, oh, he, he does. He looks like Arnold out there. I mean, it, it's impressive. <laughs> with what he has been able to do, the way that he transformed his body. He looked like an NFL athlete before, but he looks like a bodybuilder now. And to, a lot of times when guys get that big, they lose their flexibility, they lose their explosiveness, and he maintained that. So kind of like what we said before, kind of acknowledging both Holmgren and Hasselbeck previously, I think you got to give Travis Homer in, in Seattle's, uh, you know, workout crew, um, just to all their trainers, you have to give them an awful lot of credit for what Travis Homer has been able to do. Coming in next on our list at number 43, this guy just got paid recently. Brian Monet getting a really nice two-year, $12 million extension that he certainly earned. And at 345 pounds, as Pete Carroll has called him, he's svelte. This guy is in shape for a 345-pound defensive tackle. He came into the league out of Michigan undrafted at 360 pounds. And last year, all he did, Rob, he played in a career high in games, career high in tackles. He had a pair of sacks. So he was able to contribute some as a pass rusher from the interior, which you don't expect from a 345-pound nose tackle. And with him producing the plays that he did, particularly that Colts game in the season opener, how dominant he was, we've seen short glimpses of that. Seattle is betting on him finding that more consistently in the future because I think they're viewing him in this 3-4 scheme. He's going to be the anchor in the middle of that line. They're hoping for the next four or five years, ultimately, because Outwoods is not going to be here that much longer. He's at the tail end of his career. They're going to be passing that torch to Brian Monet, and he's got a chance to be that long-term nose for them. If he can take a couple more steps from last year, he's got a chance to be one of their breakout players on defense this season. No, he really does. And, and and clearly that's not just your or my opinions on this. That, that's how the Seahawks feel. Otherwise, they wouldn't have already inked him uh, you know, to an extension here, despite the fact that Al Woods, as you talked about, um, is, is still on the team and was absolutely dominant at times last season. But Brian Monet is the younger, bigger, and cheaper player. Um, and so I thought that it made sense for Seattle to make that uh, you know, to extend Monet. And then the fact that this is a former undrafted for agent, as you mentioned, this is one of Clint Hurt's biggest success stories. Then kind of build that, you know, and 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 really try to develop that in your locker room of just rewarding the guys who do it the right way, the way that Brian Monet has. We talked about it just a moment ago with Travis Homer, uh, you know, kind of completely resculpting his frame. Same thing with Brian Monet, um, that he is in better shape and he does show impressive quickness and initial explosion for such a big man. So I think that's some of the the biggest reasons why Seattle brought him back, as well as the fact that, as you mentioned, he is a terrific fit in the middle of Seattle's new defense. Speaking of terrific fits, I've talked about this player a lot the last couple of years because 
You and I have been waiting for Kobe Parkinson to have that coming out party. And he had it in training camp the first two weeks last year. I thought he was the best player on offense for the Seahawks the first two weeks of training camp. He came about 10 pounds heavier. He was ripped. He was ripping off big plays in the passing game, seemingly every single practice. The speed at six foot seven, it just it's a matchup nightmare. Then he re-breaks his foot. And unfortunately, he missed significant time. And once he came back healthy, didn't get a lot of snaps. Late in the season, we finally saw the Seahawks mixing him in more, particularly in the red zone. Russell Wilson was trying to get the football to him. It feels like there's so much untapped potential with Parkinson, particularly in this offense that we believe Shane Waldron wants to get the tight ends more involved in the passing game. This is the right scheme. It's the perfect fit for Parkinson to be an impact player, even with Noah Fant and Will Disley being above him on the depth chart. His unique skill set still gives him a chance to be a major factor in the passing game. He's just got to stay healthy, and Shane Waldron's got to find ways to take advantage of that skill set, particularly when they're in short yardage situations they need to throw the football and when they're in the red zone. Linebackers and safeties, they can't enjoy covering a guy that's 6'7", that can run like that and has really soft hands, and yet the Seahawks have not found ways to get him involved. If they can change that, again, another player with breakout potential in 2022. Yeah, he certainly does have a great deal of breakout potential. I mean, just yesterday, Corbin, of course, you and I had a conversation about some of the players that have enough, uh, you know, pull factor to them that if they were to have splashy seasons, it really could add a couple of victories to Seattle's roster. And you mentioned one of the defensive players, Marquise Blair, that I 100% agree with, that you could just see the talent that he possesses. Of course, he hasn't been able to stay healthy, and so that hasn't translated into victories. Same thing here with Park it's not just durability issues. It's been the, the lack of any kind of consistency on Parkinson's part, on, any, on lack of consistency in terms of the play caller and the quarterback. But yeah, the time is now, Kobe Parkinson. You absolutely have to be able to show what you can do at this point. Um, Noah Fant is an exceptional talent. I think that he is easily going to be Seattle's starter. And then obviously the big deal that they gave Will Disley speaks to how important that, that Seattle feels that he is to their club. So that to me is going to be one of the real questions here. Kobe Parkinson, the, the, the clock is ticking, and yet it feels like he has less of an opportunity now than he had previously because of the talent ahead of him. But at the same time, I love that you mentioned Shane Waldron. You think back of what he did with the Los Angeles Rams and the way that they used two different tight ends to a great deal of success. Um, actually, when I when when I evaluating Parkinson at Stanford, he reminded me so much of a Los Angeles Rams tight end in uh, Tyler Eifert, and just excuse me, not Tyler Eifert, but uh, I'm spacing on his name. Hey, Anyways. Me. Tyler Higby, thank you. Um, and and just in terms of his height and his speed and just the gliding running ability that he possesses, he can be that deep downfield threat. And so clearly, again, Seattle has two potential stars in Fant and Disley ahead of him. But Parkinson has to be the guy that kind of steps up and becomes that red zone specialist. And if he does so, I really think that Seattle's offense could surprise an awful lot of people this upcoming season. Wrapping up this latest ranking, this latest cluster of players coming in at number 41. Some of our listeners might be like, Phil Haynes is this high on the list at number 41. There's a reason for that. And it's that Phil Haynes, I still believe, and I think you agree with me on this, Rob. I still think there is a long-term starter in Phil Haynes if he can get healthy. And I've made this statement a couple times on earlier episodes, and I'm sticking by it. 
Gabe Jackson and Damian Lewis are your starters right now. But I don't know how long Gabe Jackson is going to be that guy at right guard. And I just have this feeling that Phil Haynes could make things somewhat interesting in training camp because this is a rebuilding roster. It's a young roster. If Seattle looks at Gabe Jackson in camp and reaches a conclusion, you know what? His best days are probably behind him at this point. Why not plug in Phil Haynes at right guard? You still might be able to get something back, especially if a team has an injury at guard and they need to bring in a reinforcement. You might be able to move Gabe Jackson at the end of training camp late in the preseason and get a late round draft pick for him potentially, even with his contract. I'm not predicting that to happen, but I'm not going to rule it out either because we saw Phil Haynes start at both guard spots late last year and at 320 plus pounds, He's got basket, former basketball background. He's athletic, but he can also maul people. I think he can win both as a gap and a zone blocker, and that is invaluable in Shane Waldron's offense. The key, of course, has to be his health because he had major injury issues his first two seasons. But we got to see last year in those last two games what this kid is capable of, and I think Seattle, there's a reason they signed him as a restricted free agent to an original round tender because they still want to take another look at this kid potentially as a long-term starter for them up front. Yeah, exactly. I think that it's appropriate we're having the conversation about these five players on What If Wednesday because it feels like this is the What If group of players for the Seahawks here. And and Phil Haynes is quite literally uh, and figuratively that, you know, one of those biggest of the What If possibilities here, just considering his size, 6'4, 320 pounds. And with the feet that he possesses, the physicality that he possesses, there's just, it screams starter in the NFL. And, you know, we had a conversation a few days ago, Corbin, in terms of what if kind of things. And, and we looked at at some of the Seattle's uh, previous draft picks that that didn't turn out and things like that. One of the ones that I wanted to talk about a little bit more that did turn out just not necessarily in Seattle would be Mark Glowinski, um, who wound up becoming a longtime starter at the Indianapolis Colts. I believe he signed a free agent deal this past season somewhere else. But the point is, yeah, the, the, the point is, is that, that he now has had two different NFL teams that he is being viewed as a plug and play kind of a guy. And that's why I think that the Seattle worries that if they lose Phil Haynes, he could wind up going somewhere else and proving to be a longtime starter in the NFL because you can just see his ability. Uh, so, again, I 100 percent agree with everything you just said as far as Gabe Jackson is probably the better football player right now, but he's older. He's more expensive. And if Seattle does feel that they can get Get similar play. Why not go with the younger player? That's what they have done for a long time now with Pete Carroll and John Schneider. So I would not be surprised at all if Phil Haynes winds up legitimizing our ranking here as our is 41st overall player on Seattle's roster. Hey, Rashad Penny went for 170 plus yards, those two starts that yep. Phil Haynes started at both guard spots, and he only gave up one pressure in pass protection in the three games that he played. And I know it's a small sample size, but he was great in pass protection and in a run blocking game, both in the zone and gap concepts. He was, he was just great in those two starts. It's a small sample size. I still think there's a starter there. So we'll see what happens. I think it's Gabe Jackson's job. I think it's Damian Lewis's job, left and right guard, but keep an eye on Phil Haynes. He's somebody I'm certainly circling going into training camp. And I think could be a fascinating player to watch in August 
as the preseason unfolds. Could still be a starter down the line for Seattle. As always, thanks for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. You can follow me on Twitter, Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Check out the Locked on Seahawks podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and of course, five days a week on YouTube. Coming up tomorrow by popular demand, I'm on family vacation. And just as we did this time a year ago, my mother, Trina Chapman-Smith, is going to be jumping on. We're going to be ranking opposing quarterbacks on the Seahawks schedule. That episode was really well-received a year ago. I came here for the family trip, and she was like, are we going to do it again? Yes, we're going to do it again. So you won't want to miss that on our Thursday edition of Locked on Seahawks. We'll see you then. Enjoy the rest of your Wednesday. Go Hawks.